Uh, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3? We'll also project the words on the screen if you prefer just to do it that way. But if you want to use the Bible uh, in the pews, it's on page 1730. So during the Easter season, we're following the lectionary as we most often do. And we're doing a sermon series called Living Easter, where we are looking at how people responded to the resurrection of Jesus. When Jesus rose from the dead, how did people react? What kind of difference did it make in their lives? How did they begin to show up differently? Uh, A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Mary preached on uh, Peter's initial reaction, his kind of right-away reaction um, when he met the resurrected Jesus. Uh, That was in the year 33 A.D., This morning, we are looking at Peter's much later reaction to the resurrection, which scholars date around 64 AD. So a few weeks ago, we got young Peter having his initial reaction to the resurrection. And today, uh, you'll see a picture in a bit, we're going to get old Peter uh, and what he says after 30 years of thinking about it. 30 years of contemplating the reality and the implications of the resurrection. And he writes about it in one of his epistles. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 13. Listen to God's word. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, He went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. This is the word of the Lord. (coughs) Peter, the Apostle Peter's writing style is exactly what you would expect from Peter. So if you're familiar with the story, if you know who Peter is, he's the kind of guy who is all over the place. And he writes like the kind of guy who is all over the place. Um, Even in the last two years of his life, scholars think that he wrote this letter with about a year, maybe two years to live. um, And he still writes in this kind of frenetic, 
chaotic way. He's jumping from one subject to the next. He's jumping from one story to the next. Suddenly he's talking about Noah and the ark, and everybody's like, Noah and the ark, where'd that come from? And you got to hold on really tight to stay with Peter. You got to hold on really tight and listen really carefully and closely to try to figure out what he's trying to say. But the point here, the point in this text, is that Peter wants to give us hope. Peter wants to give us hope, Alger Park. Peter wants us to live with hope. He wants us to believe with hope. He wants us to move forward in hope. And the problem is, and I think most of us would acknowledge this, is that so often we don't live out of our hope. Sort of what we were acknowledging in our confession a while back. We don't live out of our hope so often, maybe even most often, we're living out of our fears. Fears drive our decision-making. Fears set our agenda. Fears make us look like fools in public. Fears make us fight or freeze or flight. Fears motivate us. Fears make us act. And I think, more often than not, it happens unconsciously. One of the most powerful and memorable moments in my life was when I was asked a very profound question by a person that I barely knew. This was uh, at a time in my life when things were not going well for me. Um, uh, my life was very chaotic. I was coming to terms with my alcoholism, and I was, I was wildly grabbing for control of literally anything that I could possibly control and this man, who I barely knew, looked at me square in the eyes and he said, what in God's name are you so afraid of? What in God's name are you so afraid of? Now, <laughs> maybe that, that language makes you a little uncomfortable. And I get that, because when this man said it, he was cursing, just to be clear. He was breaking the third commandment. He was using the Lord's name in vain. But what really helped me is that I took him literally. And I took it as a theological question. And I think it's a fabulous question. What in God's name are we so afraid of? Because everything that we just read in 1 Peter 3 is our reality. It's the reality of Easter. And yet, we approach so many things with fear. We walk up to things naturally, walking up to them with fear. We get our agenda for our day from fear. We live out of fear. 
some of us much more than others, but all of us to some degree. We live out of fear. Me personally, I had no idea that I was such a fearful person until somebody hit me over the head with it and showed me, until somebody taught me just how fearful I was and how that made me try to grab for control in every area of my life and how that led me to other destructive behaviors. I needed somebody to show me just how fearful I was. The reality is, we approach so many things with fear, including God. Now, there are places in the Bible that say things like, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's in Proverbs. And when the biblical writers talk about fear that way, when they talk about the fear of the Lord, what they're talking about is a kind of soul-strengthening sense of awe. It's a soul-strengthening sense of reverence and awe and wonder when it comes to God. The fear of the Lord, when biblical writers write about it that way, is they mean a sense of like, wow, God is powerful. Wow, God is amazing. And that is a wonderful kind of fear. But that's not the kind of fear I'm talking about here. The kind of fear that I'm talking about here is a fear that God despises us. A fear that God loathes us. A fear that God looks down from his throne in heaven and says, I'm talking about a fear that God can't abide being with us. A fear that we are abandoned, that we are without God, that we are on our own. It's a fear that says the opposite of what Miss Janelle says to our children every week, including this week. A fear that it does matter what you say, and it does matter what you do, and it does matter who you are, and unless those things are in order, unless you believe these certain things, and you live a certain way, and you fit a certain mold, God will not care for you. What do we do with that kind of fear? A lot of us, even those of us who had wonderful parents, who grew up in the church, Christian education, developed that kind of fear. You want to read more about that Google purity culture. Anybody like me who grew up in the church who's about my age, we're all in therapy now because of a thing called purity culture where we were taught that because of our sexual desires, we're broken. And because we did things like lust or masturbate or 
fill in the blank. We're unlovable. Now that's an all new kind of brokenness. In verse 14, Peter talks about fear. I prefer the NRSV translation of verse 14, which says, Do not fear what other people fear. I think that's a good word. I think that's for us. Do not fear what other people fear. As, as people of the resurrection, as people of God, do not fear what other people fear. Do not fear as though you have no hope, but, Peter says, put your hearts, make, uh, I'm sorry, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Do not fear what other people fear, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. I wonder if, as Peter writes this, he's thinking about his own great failure, If you know the story of Peter, you know the story of Peter's great, great failure that he must have carried. And how long, I wonder, how long did Peter carry that failure? That's what Mary preached about a couple of weeks ago. So it all happened on the night when Jesus was crucified. Peter got up, he did a very Peter thing, he stood up in front of a bunch of people and he's like, by the way... I am bold, I am courageous, I am wonderful, my faith is through the roof, I will always stand by Jesus no matter what, just watch me go. And three hours later, he was like, I swear to God, I've never met the guy. (laughs) That was Peter 30 years ago. Now he's an old man. And he's had a lot of time to reflect. And here's what he says. He says, do not fear what other people fear. And maybe he's saying, don't do what I did. Don't succumb to fear the way that I did. I was standing in a room of strangers and I thought they were all my enemies and I became a coward. Don't fear what other people fear. Don't let your fear dictate your identity. Don't let your shame dictate your priorities. Don't fear what other people fear, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. And then this line in the middle of verse 15. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you the reason for the hope that you have. And here... I wonder if Peter is saying, don't be unprepared like I was unprepared, reflecting back 30 years ago. I was so unprepared. I was not ready. I I, I knew the hope, but I was unprepared to give an answer. I was unprepared to give an account for my hope. Somebody needed to grab Peter by the lapels that day and say, Peter, what in God's name are you so afraid of? Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Because our hope does not rest with us. Our hope 
is not in ourselves. Our hope comes from outside of ourselves. The quest for hope is not an internal exposition. It's an external exposition. So in the last half of our text, Peter makes reference to Noah and the flood and the ark and so on in the book of Genesis. Very famous story. And he says, uh, in, in Noah's ark, he says, in Noah's days, only a, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism. Boom, right over there. Which now saves you also not by the re- removal of dirt from the body, but, now hear this, it saves you by the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. What a fascinating perspective on baptism, right? It saves you by the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. What is that? (laughs) Now, like many of you, I grew up in the Midwest. And I was raised to believe that if your conscience was clear, it was probably broken. (laughs) I do not recall even a single time in my life, ever being encouraged to have a clear conscience. It's just not how we, how we roll up here in the Midwest. And there's a reason for that, right? There, there's, because there's something to that, because we don't want to go around, we don't want to walk around thinking that we're perfect. We don't want to walk around thinking that we're better than other people. And that is not healthy, for anyone to think that they're perfect. It's not healthy for anyone to think that they're better than other people, especially spiritually. I mean, hear me loud and clear. That is spiritually cancerous. That is spiritually toxic to believe that you're better than anyone or that you're spiritually, you know, perfect or anything like that. The Bible says, we are sinful from the moment that our mothers conceived us. I mean, what a day for me to recite that text. We are sinful from the moment our mothers can... Notice the fathers aren't even in the passage. We are sinful from the moment our mothers conceived us. Thanks, Mom. And it's true. It means that we've always been imperfect. We're not recovering from our perfection. We've never been there. And that's important for us to understand. In our worship every single week, and we did it again again today, and we will do it again next week, we confess our sins. And we won't stop doing that. We will do that forever. We confess our sins because we need to underscore the reality of our brokenness, and we cannot live in denial of this. So then, where does a clear conscience toward God fit into all of this? This, I think, is why Peter brings up 
the story of Noah and the flood. Uh, it's a famous story. God, God takes Noah and his family, he packs them up, and he places them in this ark, and they're safe in the ark. And everything outside of the ark is total chaos. Everything outside of the ark gets cleansed and gets purified and gets washed away. And Noah and his family are saved. And then, when all of the waters finally clear, they, they step out of the ark and they find themselves in a different place. They find themselves in a, in a very different world. And they don't live in the same world they used to live in. They're the same people, just smellier. They have the same habits they did before. They didn't break them in those 40 days. They have the same fears. They have the same inclinations, some of which are good, some of which are bad. They're the exact same people, but they're just in a different place. They no longer had to live in that place that was marked with guilt and with selfishness and with godlessness and with evil. They didn't have to live there anymore. Even though in many ways they were the same people, they were citizens of a new place. They were citizens of a new place. It's like God was telling them, you have immigrated You've left one place, you've gone to another. You've immigrated from an old world to a new world, from an old mindset to a new mindset, from an old, guilty conscience to a new, clear conscience toward God. And those old kingdoms and those old powers and those old cultures no longer have jurisdiction over you, Noah. They no longer have jurisdiction over you. They don't define you. God says, I define you. That's what baptism is. Boom. There's our hope. Our hope is not an exploration inside of ourselves. It's an exploration outside of ourselves, aiming for that font. That is our hope. That is where we are defined. That is where we find ourselves. God says, I define you. I declare the truest things about you. I get to say who you are and who you are not. I get to define your hope because our hope does not rest with us. Our hope is not found in ourselves. It comes from God. And for this reason, Miss Janelle's promise to our children and to us, rings true. There is nothing that we can say or do or be that will ever make God stop loving us. Because, and this is a little bit heartbreaking, God does not love us for who we are. <laughs> he doesn't love us for what we've done. It's not that we've impressed him somehow. That's not it. God loves us because he loves us, because he loves us, because he loves us, because he loves us. So what in God's name are we so afraid of? We can do really powerful things 
we can do really, really beautiful things when we are not living our lives out of fear. And my hope is that this sermon, God's Spirit's kind of doing a little something here, and what God's Spirit is doing, my hope is that he's loosening up just a little bit of hope for us, that he's loosening up just a little bit of freedom for us, that is loosening up a little bit of grace and a little bit of generosity and a little bit of compassion and a little bit of empathy. And we're all leaving here hating ourselves a little less, trusting in God a little bit more and living with more freedom to do things that are beautiful. Imagine a musician who plays a piece of music and the goal in mind for the musician is don't make any mistakes, don't make any mistakes, don't make any mistakes, don't make any mistakes. It's not going to work, is it? With that mindset, what kind of music is that musician going to produce? Now imagine a musician who plays a piece of music with the goal of producing something beautiful. Is she hung up on the mistakes? No. And anyone who is hung up on her mistakes is living out of a place of fear. We have the freedom in Christ not to live out of a place of fear, but to produce something beautiful. That's the kind of life that the grace of God affords us. So what in God's name are we so afraid of? Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your simplest, most beautiful, and truest promises. There is nothing we can say or do or be that would ever make you stop loving us. Help us, Lord, to grow into the courage to live into that reality so as to not get hung up on our mistakes, get hung up on our imperfections, but in humility, to move forward, to be part of something beautiful, and with the brothers and sisters around us, to live into a kingdom which is coming more and more every day. We thank you for your presence and power with us. Give us the courage to see things as they truly are, to see ourselves as we truly are. And feed us now, Lord, with your grace at your table. In your holy name we pray. Amen.